Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy Marty here to introduce this Flash episode with Rao Pal from Real Vision and the Global Macro Investor. Rao and I actually sat down this morning to talk about what's going on in the markets this week, uh, particularly around the repo rates, uh, the Fed's reaction to those rates in about an hour from uh, this ad recording right now, and the future of the financial system as we seem to be heading into another crisis. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. And if you don't, let me tell you about them. The Cash App is allowing you to stack sats. Uh, so you can buy and sell Bitcoin on the Cash App. You can send Bitcoin from the Cash App to a personal wallet, from a personal wallet to the Cash App. And then on top of that, you get uh, the ability to use the Cash App at other places with their Boost program. So you get a specialized debit card. Uh, you get to put your signature on it, Bitcoin symbol, Lightning, whatever you see fit. And then you go to partner merchants, whether it be Whole Foods, Chick-fil-A, uh, DoorDash, local coffee shops, and you save money when you shop with your Boost card, with your Boost enabled. Use the code STACKINGSATS, that's one word, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $5, then $5 is going to go to Alves Lacrosse, a charity very near and dear to our heart. Again, if you haven't downloaded it yet and you're in the U.S. and you're looking to buy Bitcoin, what the hell are you waiting for? Use the code STACKINGSATS download the cash app from your local app store today hope you freaks enjoy this episode with ral i know i sure did what is up freaks welcome back to tales from the crypt it's your boy marty bent here on a wednesday morning this might be the earliest we've ever recorded actually it's the second earliest we've ever recorded we're here at 9 a.m got a very special guest he's only got an hour um, so we're going to jump right into it. I'd like to introduce you, freaks, to the founder of Real Vision and global macro investor, Ralph Paul. Ralph, hey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, thank you for coming by. Not it's a very prescient week to have you in the studio. Um, here to get your Bitcoin thoughts. The way we usually start this podcast is how you got into Bitcoin. Um, but I think this week in particular, uh, we can sort of get to that later, considering what's going on in the markets right now. Uh, yesterday... I believe overnight, Sunday into Monday, we had uh, the effective funds, Fed funds rate go out of whack. Yesterday, the Fed had to come out and do uh, an emergency repo operation. I believe they bought, what, $53 billion worth of debt, and today they have to do another one. So it's just, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I'm nervous right now, I don't know why. Uh, it seems that uh, there's a liquidity crunch going on in, in the global macro sort of environment may be hitting ahead. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a complicated situation based on, if we go back to the big picture, what's going on, if, if we focus in on the micro now, we, we'll miss what's really going on. What's really going on is something that, a, the, well, and this will loop back to Libra, we'll come to later, what Mark Carney's telling you, the ECB are telling you, and you're hearing from the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, is that there is a problem with the dollar as a global reserve currency. And the problem is, is debt, which we all kind of know about. There's too much debt in the world and too much of it's in US dollars. So the BIS claim it's about 13 trillion of it. Okay, that's fi 13 trillion, sorry, of US dollar debt held by foreigners offshore. So that is the largest essential short position of US dollars there is in history. So therefore, US money markets have a big impact around the world. But then what happened is, as the US dollar was relatively weak, and people borrowed a shit ton of dollars, the um, regulations changed under what's known as Basel III, mm -hmm. and also Dodd-Frank. And those two regulatory changes essentially meant a dollar in London was not the same as a dollar in New York, which had never happened before. So the Euro-dollar market, which is the offshore borrowing of dollars, based on LIBOR, now suddenly wasn't really fungible. So that meant that all of these banks didn't have access to a large pool of capital, which is the US capital. And so suddenly they've got $13 trillion and there's not enough capital around. Cut to the European banks also having their own problems. So they've got banking problems, as do the Japanese banks. And so before you know it, there's not enough dollars in the global system. Then quantitative tightening comes along and it sucks out a ton more of these dollars and now the whole world's scrambling. So guess what? The dollar goes higher over the last um, few years. So 2014, all this process started. That issue 
is what you're seeing today, is the money markets are kind of broken because there's too much demand for dollars. And then with regulatory changes, there's a whole bunch of issues. And it's, it's really complex, and I don't even understand all the complexities of what is driving the repo markets and everything else. But essentially, it's to do with now the lifting of the debt ceiling. So this is a big change. Anything, what it's telling you is any change to the money markets suddenly breaks everything. So the change was the Treasury had been funding the government from its Treasury general account, its banking account, essentially because of the debt ceiling. So the Treasury is basically lending the government. So it now needs to replenish its supplies. Um, so it, it has to issue a whole ton, about 250 billion of new debt. But the government also wants to increase their spending. So they've got a bunch of debt to do and they're debt behind on the debt payments that they have. So there's 600 billion of new debt to be issued between now and the end of the year. That is basically sucking money out of the system because the Treasury or the Federal Reserve are essentially issuing bonds and taking dollars in return. So what's happened is this started this week and there were some other, other issues to do with corporate tax payments and stuff. But basically the issue is, is it's the oh shit moment that $600 billion and we've only just started. The first time money came out, everyone's like, it's impossible to get funding. Yeah, so uh, basically liquidity crunch, right? And exactly. What does, I mean... And they knew it was coming, but they don't know what to do about it. But what does that say after... Was it, so you said they started tightening late 2014, 2015, after a massive expansion of, of the monetary base and, and debt in the world. What does it say that only five years later we're, we're, we're hitting these hiccups again? Right, quickly? It, it tells you that rates are now permanently low. There is nothing we can do about it without blowing up the system. I mean, the Japanese never managed to raise rates meaningfully. I think they managed half a percent at one point. That's it. The Europeans have not managed to raise rates at all. Because what happens if you think about it logically, think about the behavior of if rates stay low for a reasonable period of time, all of us change our mortgages, you get new lending at new low rates, etc. So you've now reset generally having more debt at a lower rate. And corporations in this part of the cycle, not households as much, corporates were the big part of this. So they doubled their entire debt exposure since the peak of 2008. So they went absolutely on an orgy of debt. And they use a lot of that debt to do stock buybacks too, correct? Yeah, which is a very unproductive use of a ton of debt. So you've got this very unproductive debt, struck at low rates, huge amounts. So as rates started tightening, it became impossible because suddenly nobody could pay it back. It was like I was speaking to a family office client of mine and he had talked about his interest payments. On He kind of renegotiated all the, the leverage they've got within his family office and he said his interest payments had gone up 80%. Holy crap. And because he'd taken a lot of leverage out, because rates are low, everyone says free money. So free money means if you can, most of us can't, but if you can, borrow as much money as you can. Well, guess what? If rates go up, suddenly you've got a big problem. And that's what's happening with the whole world with this $13 trillion. They borrowed so much money, more money than has ever happened before, at record low rates. So as soon as the quantitative tightening came out, even rates didn't go up that much. At the rate of change, it went up a lot. But just the funding disappeared from the market, so now they can't get it back. Yeah, and it's uh, it'll be interesting to see what Chairman Powell does today, and that's uh, what a lot of people are speculating. It's expected there's going to be what a 25 bip cut, and people are wondering after yesterday having to do uh, an emergency repo and another one today. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of people who know a lot more about this than me. But basically, there's a number of steps the Federal are going to try, and of which the people I really trust on this say none of them will work because the issue is far too big. Because don't forget, as I said, this is the first part of the actual issuance of treasuries. We've barely done anything. It's like 40 billion have been done. And this is what's happened. We've broken it already. And we need to get through 600 billion. So I don't know what they're going to have to do, but the general consensus is the money markets are basically pricing out that 25 basis point cut immediately. Mm -hmm. So it's like the Fed are pushing against string. So what they're going to have to do is cut faster. They're going to try reverse repo operations, special things, all this kind of funky stuff. What they actually need to do is cut rates fast, and they're going to have to go back to quantitative easing. Yeah, because all this repo stuff is basically QE without calling it QE. Correct. The the but they have to go back to QE. Yeah. That's how screwed the whole thing is. Well, is it broken? Beyond belief. And that's what... Well, that's what... So this is the, what Mark Carney said. I mean, Jackson Hole, the central bank summit... 
Right, this is where the central banks are supposed to be protecting themselves and their own. And he stands up and says, by the way, that Libra thing was very interesting. We need to move away from a dollar standard. And something in this is the answer. Not necessarily Libra, but something in this. Because he knows and explained that we can't continue with this dollar-based system. Yes, that's the question on my mind. Do they see it as a, a better technology or a, uh, a lifeboat to, to get away from the problems that, that central, central banking systems created? Um, I don't know if that matters. Everybody knows we're going to have to go to something new. I mean, I mean the, the whole, you know, the, the, the rise of Bitcoin has been that, right? Many people understood it. There's the other guys who were the gold guys, right? They also understand it because people realize, look, we've got to a point where something has to change. You can either go back to the gold ways or you can go forward to new technology and a different solution. Maybe it's both. And, you know, I, you know, I don't worry about that and that's not an argument I want to get into really. But the point being is that something... That, and. The Libra idea was very interesting because it, it let the central banks still have their own currencies. Mm -hmm. But it formed this kind of ultimate stable coin because it had dollars as well as all the other currencies. Normally, it's everything versus a dollar. Yeah. So they'd be catering to that basket almost. Their, their policy well, exactly. to that basket. Now, but what was more interesting to me is, okay, that's a status quo because you've just got your Swiss francs and your yen and your pounds and your dollars and everything in that basket. Once you do that, because you've got dollars and all the other currencies, you kind of offset the dollar because everything's always against the dollar. So this means it should go up and down with global money supply. Okay, so that's a whole massive change. It looks now more like Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a money supply driven instrument. But the question is, is now you're on digital rails. So you're not on the kind of fiat system. You still are, but you're one step into the digital world. So then to be able to build off that the whole digital world that we, we're seeing coming with Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the other parts of the system being put together, it feels like it gets around the problem that, that everybody said about Bitcoin was that you can't pay your taxes in it. Well, they're just giving you the ability to do that. They're giving you the on-ramp and off-ramp. Interesting. Do you think uh, Libra launches? Do you think, I mean, the ECB came out last, last month, and, or last week, excuse me, and said... Well, it, what's clear, all I said is the moment I saw Libra, and everyone was like, oh, this is a piece of shit, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. This is <laughs> so disruptive because private companies can issue, essentially, sovereign money. And it's uh, something that hasn't existed for, what, five decades? Private currencies are maybe longer than that, and... That's, I believe a lot of Bitcoiners believe that central bankers in particular the last three or four decades have probably gotten complacent. And so the emergence of Bitcoin and, and now Libra, I think Libra, for some reason they've reacted to Libra, uh, more threatened by Libra than because, they were by Bitcoin. Because what can you do about Bitcoin, right? You yeah. know, the decentralized nature of it, right? Libra is centralized by nature, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a different beast. It's nothing to do with Bitcoin. It's just the new digital future of digitization of everything. What worried them is if you give somebody the power, so if you think of it, break it down, what is it? It ends up being Facebook running an enormous um, um, money market and fixed income fund. Right, it's basically a mutual fund. At the end of the day. It's basically a mutual fund, yeah. right? And it's shares in that mutual fund, essentially. But how powerful are they then? They become the world's largest buyer of sovereign debt. And so, you know, it becomes a very complicated world. Now, the point being is, if Facebook can do it, Anybody can do it. So then you've got a world where you've got numerous stable coins. So then I could choose a stable coin that doesn't have Swiss francs because I don't believe in the Swiss franc. And you can have one that doesn't have that. Or I can have one that includes Bitcoin. Or I can, and before you know it, right, we don't have a benchmark standard of anything any longer, which is interesting because it kind of suggests in a potential future that Bitcoin becomes that standard. It can't yet because it still needs to get to its market cap and stabilization phase. And we've got a long way for that to go. We do. Well, that's the other question. Like how, how, so that's, I guess, two schools of thought that you can go down is Bitcoin will act as sort of like this, this pressure valve, this release valve, whereas things are, are going bad in the traditional uh, financial markets, people will slowly transition to Bitcoin. At one point, uh, that'll hit a head, a tipping point, if you will. And uh, many people or, or not many people, a lot of money will rush into Bitcoin, um, money over people. Uh, and Bitcoin will have not overnight success, but success in a five to 10 year period. Or 
Is it something that plays out over decades and you have these transitionary sort of corporate coins or stable coins? I, you know, I don't know. It, I think it's happening faster than we think. Mm-hmm. And I think, I've been thinking this through recently. I think there's an extraordinary situation in Bitcoin, Bitcoin particularly, where the market is essentially, everybody is short upside. So in options terms, everyone's short gamma to the upside. What that means is the more it rises, the more people have to buy because everyone's so underweight it. Because mm-hmm. if it is truly a probability on a future system, then everyone's massively underweight where they need to be. So natural price rises will have these bubble phases because it forces people to have to have more of a stake. So we're already starting to see institutions taking these small stakes. We've seen the hedge funds were a bit earlier, and we've seen the private guys before that, and then retail before that, so retail-led thing. But really, the whole system is structurally massively underweight if it is going to play a large part of the future of the financial system. And that's why it has this ridiculous exponential price rises, um, which is super interesting. Yeah, it's, it's just the price rises in particular are just like naturally uh, captivating. You can't, you can't look away. Uh, well, no, well, I think somebody pointed out that no asset in history has ever performed as well as Bitcoin has. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, again, this is what makes me sort of partial towards the, the idea that Bitcoin may be, uh, may happen faster than people realize. Like I do think, like you said, it's, it's one of the, the fastest appreciating assets that history has ever seen. Like what if this is truly a once in multi-millennia, multi-millennia, excuse me, uh, like generational wealth what, accumulation what's really interesting is opportunity. Look, none of us know the answer, but we've all, we get a sense. And what, what gives me a lot of credibility in this, and maybe that wrongly so, is the amount of intellectual capital involved in this is extraordinary. I've, ne- I've literally never seen anything like it. Yes, we saw a lot of, you know, interesting people go over to technology and stuff like that. You know, there's been some people in biotech and, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, intellectual capital has risen versus, let's say, the, the salesman that was the, the rise of the last previous 50 years. But the amount of people involved in this and the speed of which they're moving across to this. So in my macro world, it started, I think Dan Moorhead was the first. Mm-hmm. Right, Dan is a famous macro guy. You know, he's a emerging market currencies and bond trader, you know. And before you know it, he goes off and starts Pantera. He starts a hedge fund and then decides, no, there's a better bet. It's all about one thing, which is cryptocurrencies. Okay, so that was like, everyone was like, I don't know what he's thinking of. And then the next guy to go was Novo. Mm-hmm. And Novo was like, fuck this, I'm out of, of, I'm out of macro land. And I think this is the big opportunity. Okay, so people start paying attention. There was a couple of friends of mine, and um, they're quite well known in the Bitcoin space, um, Emil Woods and Chad Cascarella, mm-hmm. um, who started ItBit and a number of things. They were very early in this whole thing. They were running a hedge fund. Um, I knew them well. They were running a hedge fund, ex-Goldman guys. Next minute, shut down the hedge fund, all crypto. I'm like, okay, wow. Then um, I think it's probably Mark Yusko. Mm-hmm. Um, and and now Dan Tapiero and what it, what it's telling me, and John Burbank. I mean, these are serious people, and what it's telling me is that they're looking at the entire pool of macro opportunities in the future, i.e., in their career lifetimes, and they're suggesting that Bitcoin's upside exceeds all of the potential opportunity sets from all of macro added together. That's what they're telling you. And that's an extraordinary statement from guys who understand what a macro bet is. They're taking one macro bet saying, this is it, everything on this. And these are guys that have made made off with big bets in the past, too. And so that's, the as you were saying, there's a lot of intellectual capital in Bitcoin. And one thing, as a Bitcoiner, uh, particularly uh, coming from a finance background, we've been waiting for the macro crowd to like get their eyes on this. And, and I can see that. It. There's and a bit like, of, like... Finally. We've been like in people's mentions on Twitter, like, hey, you should be pay attention to this. What do you think about Bitcoin? Well, see, and- I, see, I think the macro crowd got it a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So almost all of the macro funds that I knew owned Bitcoin over the last three years, personally. But they couldn't do it for their funds. And then slowly they did some for the funds. But now what's happening is people are actually just leaving their entire existing businesses and going 
to crypto. So that's an even bigger thing. They've been involved in, they saw it a long time ago. Now, when I wrote the article back in 2013 about um, why Bitcoin, if you used a valuation of, of gold with the above ground supply and underground supply, and then applied that to Bitcoin, it should be worth a million dollars gold equivalent. Um, and that got circulated around a lot. And at that point, a lot of people in macro land, because obviously a lot of people were clients of mine and friends of mine, started getting into the whole thing. Well, that's like, I'm fascinated because you see what the infrastructure and the markets that were built in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Uh, I don't want to say I necessarily want to bring all the financialization to Bitcoin, but Bitcoin does need liquidity pools at the end of the day. It doesn't need market structure at the end of the day. So that's the one thing that excites me the most, getting these uh, these eyes from the traditional finance sector on Bitcoin, because particularly around futures contracts, right? Like we need markets, like, I think this would be incredible for a traditional macro guy just to sort of uh, approach futures markets at a completely in a completely different perspective because you, in Bitcoin you have to think of future like hash rate and future uh, difficulty and stuff like that. And you can create mining futures and stuff like that. And there's still so many markets to be developed. But are you not going to end up creating the same mess that we created in the first place know. with derivatives on top of derivatives? That's well. That's my fear is... Well, that's the fear, but at the end of the day, that's the beauty of Bitcoin, right? You can verify that those assets have the collateral, right? And, that's right. And so that's, that's another... Like, how would you see a, a new financial system growing in parallel with the decaying financial system that we have today? And I would imagine that, that you, an asset, a digital asset as collateral, as universal collateral, is probably the first step, correct? Or, the problem is of Bitcoin currently being a collateral instrument is it's too volatile mm -hmm. so what haircut do i give you on your bitcoin well if it goes up and down 80 percent over six month period i'm not going to lend you any money against it mm -hmm. or very limited amounts so you need some stability to get um leverage yeah. um so it's so it needs to still change and i still think the problem is it's it's so early in its journey because if it is fully accepted then it you know, then maybe it's the $100 trillion market cap. So we're so far away from that that you, you're never going to be able to use it as collateral yet. But I do think that it can eventually be the architecture for the collateralization of the global system because then all collateral is recorded. And then you can build whatever you want on top of it. That and then it's just, it seems like it would just make international trade better. Right? Yes. Like you have just a, I don't want to say a metric system, but you have a... a a sole currency that you can uh, settle between across the world. Correct, but it can't get there yet because it's got to go. It's got to get to its full market cap. Oh, really, yeah. yes. Um, and we're we're so far away from that. So in the meantime, we can see the change. Is the the interim change is going to be a stable coin? It's coming. Who it's going to be? Is it going to be an IMF stable coin or a World Bank stable? I don't know. But you know that the moment we start that, we've basically started the process. Yeah. Well, it feels like the process is, has already started, right? Uh, yeah. Like you were saying, Mark Carney earlier. That's right. So. Well, that's a huge change. Nobody well, in Bitcoin would no, ever believe that, that right? Well, that's what I'm trying to get at. Like, well, the gravity of not just Bitcoin, but the gravity of the, the, the situation we find ourselves in, in the monetary system and banking system in particular, like... How fickle of a situation is it in your mind? Well, look, I mean, the history of money is this, right? The history of money is these catastrophic changes of system. So the last time we really went through, the last two times we went through, one was the abandoning of the gold standard in, in, in the 70s. The other one prior to that was the abandoning of the gold standard in the 30s. And the 30s right? is very similar to now. So what happened is one country after the other left the gold standard because they couldn't afford it and capital was fleeing. So... It was kind of um, the UK had a huge devaluation, France had a huge devaluation, a bunch of country after country after country after country was devaluing. And then what happened was the US dollar got too strong, which is what's happening now, because essentially the US sucked in all the world's capital, which is happening now. And that was part of that was the huge rise in the stock market that happened as well. And then the massive deflation, so the rates of return were still higher in the US. And so what it did is suck in all the capital and the US had to basically depeg. Um, and they then eventually did repeg again, 
but that was a huge break to the system. But this time around, because of the amount of derivatives and leverage and all the other complications that we've got, we kind of know that what are we going to depeg from now? You know, you have to figure something out that doesn't... I know the world, particularly the gold crowd, believes that the answer is going to be hyperinflation. If you listen to what Mark Carney says, they know that they need to make a change earlier as opposed to later. Because you can't let the fiat system totally collapse because the world ends. Yeah, a lot of people, and I probably fall into this bucket as well, believe that we'll just have the Jap- Japanification of the world where you sort of stagnant markets for for five to ten years or well, something I like think that. that's still possible, right? Because that's yeah. a demographic issue more than anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at every market that's got the demographic issues, one after the other, depending how old they are, the market went down and never came back up again. So it happened to Japan first, then it happened to Europe. The last one left standing is the US. Yeah. And the US is now going to peak retirement. So the chances are the next time around, the next recession, which I think we're walking right into, I think the next recession, the stock market doesn't recover because the natural bar of the stock market, and uh, this, this is a part of the Bitcoin story in this, the natural bar of the stock market would be the baby boomer, but they've all retired. So they're natural sellers, and the millennials don't no, want to own stocks and they're too expensive. Yeah, we don't have any money for that, do we? No. <laughs> so if you have less money and you have stocks with the expected future return over the next 10 years of negative and you have expected 10-year return on bonds as zero or negative, same with credit. So you're a 28-year-old and you don't have any savings because you've got a bunch of student debt, but you can cobble together 10 grand and you can put in a you know a grand a, a grand a month or five hundred dollars a month you can save. If you stuck it in Bitcoin, your potential upside is enormous in comparison. So it answers the question of low savings, but a need for future retirement income because of the expected return is so vast compared to anything else. Well, this this is blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> this is blasphemy coming from. Uh Somebody from the, I don't want to say the mainstream, but somebody uh, from the traditional, Bitcoin is, is for criminals and drug users. <laughs> what, uh, how could it be a, re- a retirement fund for millennials? Is it, is it mature enough? Is it safe enough? So look, so if you go back to the last time somebody got given a set of cards like this, and I think the Bitcoin card is actually a better one. The last time people got given a set of cards like this was the baby boomers in 1982. They had interest rates at, 18% on 10-year bonds or 30-year bonds, 18% interest rates, and they had stocks with a PE of 7. That was a once-in-a-generation opportunity, uh, once in multi-generations, because the Gen Xers, I never had that in my lifetime. So I've never had that opportunity, but they got it, and they've followed that wave all the way to the top. Now, the problem is they're going to have to unwind that wave. Mm-hmm. But the, the millennials are be- and, the, and Gen um, Z is being given potentially a bigger opportunity, but they've got less money they, because you guys have all come in with debts. Well, um, the baby boomers didn't start with debt. They were debt-free when they started because the credit boom started later. The credit boom started really kind of mid-'80s. Yeah, no, I mean... Yeah, you're talking to somebody with student loan debt here. And that is crazy how... I don't know, so I'm 28. I am that person you described earlier. So it's it's like seeing my cohort. Like It it is fascinating how... And I'm just thinking back to my life, but I know everybody my age went through this. So like you got to go to... Like high school was four years of picking your college and where you're going to go and working towards that. And as a generation before... socially forced into this debt um at the end of the day everybody has a, a personal decision to make whether or not they they want to take the debt but i feel like we felt compelled and now we're sitting here like what the what the fuck like 10 years out or six years out of college I mean, like, what, what happened is is you misunderstood the future expected return mm-hmm. <laughs> so what you, your cost versus the upside so you took a risk reward bet and everyone got the wrong bet yeah well, that's the thing. Like, as a 17-year-old, 16-year-old making decisions for the rest of your life, you don't understand those costs. And that's, no. And um, that's one of the reasons why they'll, they're going to have to have a debt jubilee. I don't know how they can do it for all the student stuff. But you can't 
screw an entire generation of people who had no understanding what risk they're taking or what bet it is they're taking. Because all anybody tells you is you must have a degree or you must do this. Yeah, but the problem is, is if you devalue the currency, which is the piece of paper you get at the end of it, which is what's really happened, then what actually happens is only the people at Stanford, Harvard, MIT get all jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but you've all paid thinking you've got the same expected return as a guy going to MIT. You haven't. No, and it's, I don't want to say it's nefarious, but you, the, the Fed likes to say there's no inflation, but then you look at, uh, you look at university costs, healthcare, and well, look at inflation. Housing. So the inflation is with demographics only. So if you look at the actual cost of a pair of jeans or whatever, right? If you would buy a pair of Levi's now and look at Levi's 30 years ago and Levi's 20 years, you know, basically they've probably gone down in price or they're about flat. Mm -hmm. I mean, they haven't moved a lot. And there's a lot, tons of stuff haven't moved. And this is the big fight that the inflationistas have with the deflation people. I'm a, I, I believe more in deflation overall because there's a whole set of things that haven't risen that much in price. Obviously, even a 1% rise compounds over time, so it starts looking big. But when you look at the demographics, so if you think of what happened, the highest inflation rate was for the super rich back in the mid-2000s. Because mm -hmm. all these Russians came on, and these Chinese, and these Indians, right? So we had the largest number of new rich people we had seen since the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> and those guys all went out and bought houses in London, Vancouver, art. New York. Yeah, Vancouver, New York, art, uh, and you know, just uh, modern, modern design furniture. Those things went ridiculous. I mean, the price of art, wine, all this crazy stuff, right? Because that was their inflation, because they were out-competing each other for a limited supply of goods. That's true inflation, demand-driven inflation. Mm -hmm. Healthcare, same. That was that was a that was a um, demand driven from an aging population. They had to get in because the government couldn't supply it, so there wasn't enough supply. But there was enormous demand because you've got this aging population. Everyone's thinking, and an incredibly unhealthy population in the U.S. Incredibly unhealthy. So that you've got a huge problem. So that was a no-brainer that that was going to cause massive problems. It's not going to go away. And the millennials, well, they were going to cause a massive bubble in the because there was too many young people all needing to go to college of course price of colleges were going to go up so it's not you know it's not the federal reserve it's your parents fault well, your parents <laughs> well then i want to put it on the federal reserve but the government like the government should not have been given out uh like what they to believe the federal government has issued 1.2 trillion dollars worth of federal student loans so here in the u.s they, in okay particular. so then take that away mm -hmm. here's an argument is then so the government is now going to take away your opportunity of going to college. That's the other way of spinning it, you see. So it's very, it's between a rock and a hard place. My guess is they didn't have a clue what they were doing. They thought they were helping people and they created a massive mess. Yeah. yeah. You know, because they don't have a free education system in the US. Well, and that was more of the problem. And, and going back to your point of the rate of return on your degree, and you have most people going, getting English degrees and communications degrees and not, denigrating people will go do that but it's just the the industry that you're going to get into after you graduate is not going to produce the salary that's going to pay back that loan and um now yeah it is who to blame who to blame and it no it is maybe we're, we're all at fault here right you had the decision to, to sign the loan uh the government probably should well, i don't i don't know as you said i think you rightly said people are too young to make that decision yeah um, and I think the government thought they were doing good, giving people more access to education without realizing what they did is destroy their future expected returns because they have to pay back all this debt. I mean, so, well, so I think, so here's something broader. I think that much of the system of debt is going to disappear. What do you mean by that? Because of the digitization. This whole, and it doesn't have to be Bitcoin at this point, it's all the kind of crypto tokenization of everything means that in the future, you are able to sell off parts of your expected future income streams to raise the money. So what you're not doing is having to, you're basically, it's like a, it's like selling equity in yourself as opposed to debt. Yeah, well, the uh, the Brooklyn Nets player just did that. Um, 
a Brooklyn Nets player just issued, I believe, $35 million uh, security token offering on his future revenues. So it seems like it's starting. Yeah. I mean, David Bowie started this whole thing when he issued Bowie Bonds, which was... When did he issue? I've never heard of Bowie Bonds. 1994, something like that. Talk about a prescient uh, human. He called the internet in like 2001. Yeah. Extraordinary man, right? So he started selling his future royalty rights via a bond. But, but now you've got to the point where you can tokenize it. So it becomes really interesting for people because also once you start tokenizing everything, so let's, the things like a corporation. We got uh, to make it clear for the freaks out there. We're not talking about like ICO tokens. We're talking about security tokens in particular. Correct. And we don't even know what format that's going to be, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be some form of fractional ownership. Call it that as a simple way. Yeah, it's not uh, individual blockchains giving no revenue to to users or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So the idea is that if you've got fractional ownership of anything, then everything that we understand from even financial markets has changed. So a corporation, so even the word corporate, it means they're creating a kind of entity that has the same kind of standing, legal standing as a as a person. That's the whole idea of a corporation. But with tokenization, you don't actually need a corporation. Because let's say you're Exxon, you've got thousands of revenue streams, income streams, cost streams. All of that can be separately monetized, securitized, tokenized. And people can as well. As you said, the Nets player could be your career as a, as a 28-year-old. I may just think your future expected value is higher than you want to, than you do now and you want to take some money by selling some of it. Maybe I could short you and buy your friend because I think he's a bit smarter than you. <laughs> what it means is what we know as financial markets are going to change massively. <sighs> what does this do for psychology? <laughs> it's, uh, do we want that? Is it, more, is it a more efficient market? Is it more... Uh, well, if it's not debt. I mean, yeah, are you... In, are you I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of philosophical because I was thinking actually it's it's some form of slavery too, but so is debt. <laughs> right. So I don't really know. Yeah, is it is it different? But I I do know it's going to offer different opportunity sets, and that I'm not sure that people will think of debt will not be the maybe the main instrument. Maybe the demand for debt disappears. Yeah, maybe. Well, it's like thinking of this conversation. It's like what is the the bigger total addressable market too? Is that that market for security? Uh, securitized uh, income or the market for reserve money, right? And then if the market for... Res- well, the reserve money is only the basis by which everything else is formed from. Yes. So it has the securitized market has to be larger. It will always be larger. Okay. Really, because it's built on top of it. So if you think of that architecture we talked about, right now it looks... Well, right now it's fiat currency. Let's say, for argument's sake, and we don't know, so no, nobody's making a prediction here, but let's say it moves to one of these stable coins, private sector stable coins or a World Bank stable coin. Meanwhile, Bitcoin and various other components of the digital system start building up to where they're going. So then you're now running a dual system. After that, we'll find that more and more things will start getting built on this architecture. And then let's say this, the tokenization that I'm talking about, the securities tokenization, um, that gets built on which part of that infrastructure. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know, but I'm guessing Bitcoin. Yeah, that's. I mean, we I, we probably can't even fathom how uh, things are going to be built. And that's on top the point. When I had that conversation with Dan Tapiero, people have no clue, and any of us who think we do are lying. It's completely new. It's a massive. It's an invention of which nobody really understands the full implications. A uh, lot of smart. Too many smart people in the space have too many big opinions, of which they need to have a little bit of humility to understand that they really don't know where this is going. Um, Huge parts of this are going to fail. Huge parts of this are going to be su- massive successes that we didn't even see coming. I mean, nobody saw smart contracts coming when it first started. Or maybe some people did, but most people didn't. And some people didn't see something else happening. Or the, the Libra thing. Well, who knows? Well, so that's, I'm what someone consider a Bitcoin, a Bitcoiner. I don't want to say Bitcoin maximus. Uh, a Bitcoinist. Where... So like all this, like smart contracts, Bitcoin has had smart contracts since the beginning. Like a, a Bitcoin... Address is essentially a smart contract, right? And especially a multi-sig, um, and so that's where. So I'm under the belief that Bitcoin will be basically the TCP/IP layer of this this 
economy of value, this digital economy of value, right? And um, it's, and I'm more also more partial to the belief that in the future, like like Bitcoin is trying to push us more towards uh, a conservative equity based uh, economy where you you lower your time preference and uh, accumulate capital to build bigger, grander projects over time instead of. Uh, maybe issuing debt on your future income and stuff like that. Do you are you partial towards that sort of Austrian view of lowering time preference and maybe getting away from the society conspicuous consumption that we find ourselves in today? I think it goes in phases. Mm-hmm. I think it just goes in phases because of the, the beast that it was built from was a financial crisis. You know that's why the Austrian economics has kind of affiliated itself with it along with the uh, libertarian movements. A lot of things affiliated along with it that are not really necessarily part of it, and there will be an ebb and a flow of that. Um, you know, there may be an Austrian school of economics now, but I actually think the rise of behavioral economics is much bigger. Um, and I've been a kind of pseudo-Austrian business cycle economist, but I think behavioral economics is much larger and probably much closer to the truth, because once you have massive data sets, there's a lot that goes on. And you know, people like Facebook, again, have been mind-blowing in their ability to understand how um, behavioral economics can be applied to large-scale corporations. So let's jump more into behavioral economics. What's uh, sort of the synopsis of, of the behavioral view? Well, the behavioral view is, and again, I'm no expert on it, but I observe it. And let me put it in a, in a way that's... Behavioral economics is understanding that there are incentives-based systems which humans operate. And it came from a guy called... Um, Skinner. Skinner did um, experiments with animals and, and managed to figure out that certain stimuli would create certain outcomes. And then when it was applied to humans and it realized it was the same thing. Generally positive stimulus work better than negative stimulus but you can have negative stimulus and it will work too. Once you understand that you understand that you can change human behavior um, or influence human behavior or you can also understand human behavior because once you understand that there's usually an incentive-based system somewhere inherent in a structure, Bitcoin's a fantastic incentive-based system, which is why it works so well. But um, so what is interesting about it is behavioral economics was useful for advertising at first and marketing. Mm-hmm. Clickbait. Well, even before then, right? Ogilvy and advertising, the most famous book about advertising is basically behavioral economics. It's psychology. It's where psychology meets economics meets science. Mm-hmm. Okay, great, because psychology, there's a load of kind of claptrap with it, but this is basically data-driven psychology okay, that, and economics, so that's fine. But then the, the big change was computing power and data. So once you've got the internet, you can collect vast amounts of data. So now I can really understand what's going on. I don't have to build a mathematical model to understand. I can actually watch it in real time. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, stat that was thrown at me earlier this year is that the internet records more history in one day than was ever recorded from 4000 BC to 2000 or something like that, which is insane. It's ridiculous. But then there was a really fantastic, m- many people haven't seen, there's a documentary called The Secrets of Silicon Valley by the BBC. It's a two-part documentary series, and it goes into everything from the from how what happened over the election. I know that's a very contentious thing, but what happened over the election and just super fascinating. But really interestingly, within that, there is talking to a bunch of people who said back in, and I don't know the year, I'm going to guess 2014, there's a guy called uh, Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman is considered the, the founding father, and uh, along with Richard Thaler and a few others, of behavioral economics, of, as economics as a study, as opposed to behavioral sciences. And he had a meeting with, I think it was Zuckerberg. I think it was. It might have been Reid Hoffman. It might have been um, Jeff Bezos was there. Um, Sergey was there from Google. So all of the all of the new digital businesses from Silicon Valley went, and I believe for a week with Kahneman, who explained to them the power of behavioral economics, how that they could. They have so much data, their ability to affect people's behavior. And that's when suddenly Facebook started developing the emoticons. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just a thumbs up, thumbs down. Smiles, anger. Because, yes, because they knew how human behavior, how you can prompt human behavior to create expected outcomes. And you can measure those outcomes ah. and then tweak them. That's the behavioral science part of it. 
that you can apply not only to corporations, much like Libra, Facebook is coming up with Libra, but that whole idea is not just necessarily applicable to a corporation. It's applicable to everything. everything. Uh, it's scary, right? Very. Because uh, it's, it's very I, scary and very good, also. Well, Bitcoiners too. They they uh, are very very privacy conscious too. So a lot of a big movement that you see in the Bitcoin world is is self sovereign data. So so hosting your own hardware and holding your data on your on your own node so that these corporations can't can't use it. Uh, against you in this in this yeah. some would some would say against because you because the logical conclusion is not good yeah. right on on route can you can you create a better economy by applying behavioral economics yes but look what china's doing they're using exactly they're using behavioral economics essentially to control the masses cuz you know propaganda was an early form of behavioral economics so that surveillance state and the ability to nudge people by saying you don't get any social points for this and that i mean whether we like it or not it's coming so the so, the sovereignty issue it is a big deal, um, your personal sovereignty. I don't think it's possible. Uh, uh, yeah, are we, are we gonna <laughs> and live I live it? on a small island of 140 people in the Caribbean, so I'm about <laughs> as close to that as possible, but I still don't think it's possible. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think it's hard to get away from all these cameras that have been erected, but I do think we should fight for it, right? Um, and... And I think that's what draws people to Bitcoin is Bitcoin's transparency. Like it's in, these technologies are inevitable, but if they are transparent, you know you're not getting... Uh, well, the, the, when you lower the chance of manipulation, you're giving yourself a fighting chance in this whole thing. And I think that is the, the key part of Bitcoin is the... There are some abilities to manipulate it, but generally overall, because of its nature and the, the more adoption it gets, the lower the chance of manipulation. So that is supremely powerful. Yeah, and it's um, I'm trying to think of the quote that somebody uh, actually read a, a paper from 2018 that somebody wrote on Bitcoin over the weekend, and I, I, there's a, two Latin quotes, and Bitcoin basically takes us from authority, uh, authority via like dic, diktat via the government telling you what is what is true, and then uh, authority via truth is what Bitcoin is because you can verify that's uh, being verifiable is, is the big thing like you can't verify exactly what the government's I mean, doing the whole world has to move towards verification fast right so the the problem is is phase one of social media which now is going to be part of our lives because it's part of human behavior now and also the gamification of the world all of this stuff going on you need a layer of verification because the societal problems that it's causing so I think it's important now, I know that um, Tim Berners-Lee has been working on a newer version of the internet, which basically has verification built in. Clearly blockchain has some abilities to do that too, and there's a number of different ways of doing it. But having your own personal, owned, immutable ID, essentially, that you own your rights to, is powerful, because you can then monetize yourself, should you want to. Exactly. You know, it's very interesting. India had a great example of this, and most of the Bitcoin community don't even know because they didn't like it because it wasn't a Bitcoin or, or blockchain solution. But they did something extraordinary. They digitized the entire financial system in one go. Nobody's ever done anything like this before on that scale. So they basically gave 1.3, 1.2 billion people a digital wallet. Um, Biometrics is involved too, right? Yeah, so it's a biometric system says print, fingerprint retina scan. Mm -hmm. That gives you the access to what is your ability to make bank payments. So their payment system is one of the fastest digital payment systems on earth. It's not using blockchain technology and it's not using Bitcoin. It's not using any of that infrastructure. Is it as secure as everything else? Probably not. But fascinated to see what they've just done. So now I can go in India with a fingerprint and buy a pint of milk. Right? And that's just blown past everybody in the world. In, in one go. Then, not only that, but my fingerprint now gets me into what's known as India Stack, and India Stack allows me to have my, all my KYC documents about me. Now, mm -hmm. this is centralized. The, there can be a decentralized version to come. So again, I'm not saying this is the perfect solution, but this is where the world is going. So in India, I can go and open a mobile phone account, which normally is a total ball ache because you need to get all the paperwork and all of this. No, one fingerprint, it's all in my file. And so I give them the rights to it, they say, fine, that's it. So you can open bank accounts immediately, transfer stuff, get insurance. It changes everything. So all these Indians in rural communities, all of that, it will eventually change everything for everybody, giving them a huge access. Obviously, governments can now 
have a tighter grip on taxes, but I'm sorry, you can't have a country and expect to have, you know, roads and everything else without people paying taxes. Ooh, you just triggered the libertarians out there. I know. Who I live build in a country with no taxes, but they still have to charge some tax, which is import duties. There's no capital gains tax, income tax, sales. Uh, you know, there's just nothing apart from import duties. Um, Do you guys have roads? Yeah, because we have to, you know, it's charged via import duties. Okay. Okay. No, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's, um, well, that's, again, but that's, it's scary, right? Because you can go back to China. Like, what if in the future, if you start jaywalking, uh, Modi stops letting you buy milk or something like that? Or they want to be drinking milk over there. Um, <laughs> but yes, but yes, exactly. It can stop you get, get, getting alcohol on a Friday night. Yes. I'm sorry, you've not been, you've not earned your points this week. Yeah. Which is perfect behavioral economics. But Jesus Christ, is, that's not a good thing. Now, the, and I don't know. I mean, we, what's weird is even the sci-fi people, everybody, they've seen this coming for the last 100 years. Right. And it's like we can't avoid it. It's like a fly around a, a moth to a flame, right? We just cannot avoid the inevitable. It's like the rise of the robots. I mean, you know, it's all coming and we kind of all know where it's going and there's... <laughs> Nothing we're going to do about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's inevitable. It, make, it makes you think you're living in a simulation sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. It, um, no, but it's... I am a, a romantic, and I like to think that Bitcoin provides an opportunity to to get away from that dystopian black that's mirror. what first got me into it, Yeah, was that. That thinking, I saw the financial crisis and all of the... I just thought that there needs to be something that gets you out of some of this. Yeah that you can sidestep it, you can avoid it, and you can rec- had a recorded ownership of stuff because that was a big problem solved. But I think the problem is bigger than Bitcoin can solve because the digitalization of everything comes with the fact that everybody can be controlled. That, but it, I mean, I also believe the, the tumult and the transition that we find ourselves in presents a grand opportunity too because I'm under the belief that People don't understand what money is. People don't understand what fine. Like we were talking about how a 17-year-old taking on a loan for college, they don't understand what that is. And that's the beauty of Bitcoin, at least for me, uh, in the last six years that I've been diving down this rabbit hole, is how much it's taught me and, and how much I've learned about how the world works. And uh, The problem with Bitcoin, I think Dan Tapiero said, is if you give somebody a piece of gold, and so this is money, you can exchange it for this they understand it very quickly. With Bitcoin, the more you look at it, the more complex it is. Yeah, the more questions you have. Yeah, I mean, it's it's literally one of the most complicated things any of us have ever had to deal with. So we've all had to get up a knowledge curve of which it's still exponential because the actual developments are exponential as well. So it is super difficult. So you can't explain to somebody, oh, this is money and this is a new architecture for the financial system and this may be the trusted ownership of everything and it may be verification of everything you can't say that to somebody because they look at you and think you're mad because you start as again dan tapiero said you sound like a religious fanatic right yeah it's uh there's very religious undertones with bitcoin uh the the there is because it's all about salvation right yeah that's the that's the issue with the message and bitcoin is a terrible message messaging problem (laughs) is it getting better do you think what what would your message? I think it's starting to feel. If I look at Twitter as my, you know, thing, I think it's starting to feel more inclusive, less aggressive. Um, there's a bit more humility around. There's a bit more, as I said inclusiveness and understanding that people don't know everything. There was an extraordinary arrogance from people who knew little, but because they knew a bit of code, now it made them think that they had a right to tell everybody else that they were idiots. It was, a, it was a terrible thing. It's still t- far too tribal. Yeah, it so is. The Bitcoin maximalists, the Bitcoinists. I mean, it is like the life of Brian. I mean, the Monty Python film. <laughs> we're the Judean people's front. We're the people's front of Judea. It's ridiculous. It is. Ethereum. Oh, we don't like you Ethereum people. You're all idiots. You, get, grow up. There is a world of which all of this will exist, and it cannot be driven on tribalism, or you're going to create exactly the kind of systems you're trying to avoid. That is not libertarianism. It's the opposite of libertarianism, is to create t- tribalism. No, I think, and what a lot of people don't realize, there's billions of people behind this, too. And, you know, a lot of voices are going to get drowned out. But, yes. Um, 
not to call it tribalism, whatever, but I do think there is beauty in the meritocratic process that, that unfolds in Bitcoin that I haven't seen in other other I totally areas agree. as well. I'm, the organic nature of what's going on is truly extraordinary, which is why it's so difficult to pin down. Right. Because there is no direction. It is the direction of... It's amorphous. It's an organism. It's, yeah. it's an ant colony. Yeah. It's an ant colony. That's extraordinary. Well, that's uh, Ralph Merkel, uh, creator, of the, the founder of the Merkel tree, inventor of the Merkel tree. Inventor? Discoverer? It's math, so I guess discover of the Merkle tree. Um, now, he had this beautiful comment that Bitcoin is its a living organism. It, it, it replicates itself on people's software around the world. It updates itself every 10 minutes, and it can't die. Uh, if, if, if you have nodes go down in one half of the world, they're still running on the other, and it's still living and, and re- replicating itself on computer after computer. And again, a digital living organism is... Is that not terrifying? Yeah. If you take it not from Bitcoin, which is benign. Yeah, well, that's... Uh, but a non-benign digital living organism is exactly what we fear. Well, it has... When you think about it, when you get really trippy with it, really heady, if you smoke a joint, think about it. <laughs> uh, Bitcoin has contracted at us out, humans out. Bitcoin has found a way, software, this code, has found a way to, to force us humans to do stuff via capital expenditure to, to get miners and nodes to plug it in to make sure that it survives, right, at the end of the day. Um, yeah, it's like dogs control the world, right? This, We're just their servants. This code has Do- contracted us out to make sure that we run computations that make sure it lives. Um, yeah. You could think of it that way. Yes, but as you say, if it's an organism, that is what it is. Yeah. And, you know, as you look at, as I said, you know, dogs, this symbiotic relationship, dogs are extraordinary. The reason they survive so well as a species is because they, they basically hoodwinked humans into saying, well, feed us. Feed us. Yeah. So dogs don't have to hunt any longer. Mm-hmm. So they've got food and shelter. What, what a fantastic relationship for, for that. But yes, I mean, there's, there's many of these kind of, um, these kind of organisms that have that kind of, is it parasitic? Symbiotic. Symbi- mm. Mm, that, yeah, I'm not sure, actually. There's many, there's many forms of it. Uh, Correct. Yeah. You have a symbiotic, parasitic relationship, a true but Is that any different to a computer virus? I don't know. I don't know. We Amazing. shall find out. Just a virus. That's another. That's another huge theme of this podcast is that we were born in generation Gen X, Boomers, Gen X, Millennials, Z. Half the half and the, the the latter end of the Boomers through us. We're born at this inflection point where the world, technology, information is changing at such a pace that he, like we as a species have never experienced before. Like we have never experienced this pace we, of change. We, we did a fantastic documentary series on Real Vision called A World on a Brink. It was a five parts, each part was an hour long um, by a friend of mine called Dee Smith. And basically it was about change and the unparalleled process of change that's going on. Because don't forget, while we're having this demographic bust, the entire, what I refer to as the monsoon region, if you look at all the countries surrounding India, mainly all the Islamic nations have had a massive baby boom, absolutely extraordinary baby boom. Um, and we've got, so th- that, that shift of demographics is unparalleled in human history. We've got that, we've got the technology shifts going on. We've got um, the shifts in medicines and, um, um, and the, the threats that come with that as well. The, the, the quantum changes in so many things have, literally never happened before and it's almost impossible for us to deal with if you even look how social media is completely taken over our life if you want to look at a something like a virus that took over and is now indestructible it's that well and something with externalities that you couldn't foresee coming i mean i don't want to get depressing here but like studies have come out 10 social media is what 10 years old facebook was 2008 2007 it's unbelievable i've never seen anything but get we got to be careful with the kids, right? Because it's like it, studies are coming out. The kids that get on social media earlier are are not developing socially well enough and are no, self-harming and, you can and it Brain waves and yeah. MRI scans and they've got developmental changes. May not be delays, but they're going to be different human beings to us. And that is a extraordinary thing to admit that we've managed to do without knowing what any of the knock-on effects are. But then, as I said, partly, if all of those guys from Silicon Valley had sat down with Daniel Kahneman and had talked about how to affect people and how to use it, they are complicit as well. Right. 
Yeah. They are complicit. They, can, they can't go, we didn't know. Yeah, you did. You just didn't think through all the knock-on effects, but you knew exactly what you were doing, that you were stepping down that route. Yeah. Well, are things happening t- too quickly? Like, does this drive the world mad, the way, like, the, the well, pace look, of change? I, I think all of us feel it, right? You yeah. can see it in, the, in, in, in um, voter behavior. I mean, around the world, this thrashing against populism, the desire for something of the past, right? So Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, a lot of these guys are looking back. I want the days of the past, something I understand because I don't understand now. That's really being driven by the last hurrah of the baby boomers who are struggling with the amount of change. Um, me as a Gen X in the middle, we've kind of used to part amounts of change. So it's not that shocking. And the millennial generation saw some change, which is, you know, the um, the financial crisis and the kind of this is why it's this whole thing is such a big thing for the millennial generation. But Gen Z, they won't notice any of this stuff. You know, di- they live in the digital world. Yeah, they're on TikTok all day. Yeah, and they yeah. live in the digital world. They're on Fortnite, and they're playing Fortnite with their friends, and they don't see a difference between the digital world and the real world. And as I talk about, you know, we may buy a a shirt from a name brand, and we'll pay maybe 20 times over the price of the cotton and the manufacturing because we want to be associated with the socioeconomic benefits of that brand, right? So it's the stupid tribalism of humans. But in the, and that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But most of us can't understand why kids want to buy a new sword for 10 grand on... Fortnite. A skin. Yeah. A skin. It's the same thing, right? Because mm-hmm. they live there, it has status. And if they have socioeconomic status there, because they're humans, we do these ridiculous things, they're going to do it. So that tells you that anything digital has a value. Because if people spend more time living in the digital world, then it's a real thing. It sounds pretty bullish for Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it does, right? (laughs) But it does overall, because they will intuitively understand. They won't have to go through that, that crisis of confidence of... Oh my God! But it's it's just a formula. How does this? How can this be anything? They're like whatever. That and the thought of going to a bank branch and actually speaking to a teller would terrify a Gen Zer, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although you know, I must remember, you know, it was actually quite nice when you walk into the bank. Say, hey, Mr. Powell, how are you? Hey, listen, can you do me a favor? I just want to do this. You know, human interaction is actually what makes right. I mean, this is actually a real point: is we don't have enough human interaction. Right. And they, again, with MRI scans and um, psychological studies show that humans with less human interaction with each other have massive um, um, psychological problems and health problems um, because people don't do it. I mean, they say they're now coming around to the, one of the reasons that Spain, for example, is now projected to be the longest living country in the world um, after Japan and all the Mediterranean belt is not only just food, it's because they have human interaction. People are out at 11 a.m. drinking beers, talking with each other. That's exactly right, right? They, yeah. it, it's exactly that. And on Sunday, the whole family, extended family, and your friends all go and have paella and eat for five hours and get together. We don't do any of that shit. Americans are in the mall no. on a Sunday. My, my wife and I actually got married in Spain. So oh, we spent like, uh, in Rwanda. Oh, lovely. Because yeah. I lived in Spain for 10 years. Yeah, we uh, so down in Andalusia. And, um, but we, we stayed for 15 days. And like I, by the 15th day, I was like, I, I, could, I don't want to leave. Like That's just waking nice. up, doing siesta, and cappuccino and a croissant in the square. Everybody's just hanging out, smoking cigarettes, reading. It was awesome. The best. Yeah. And you're like, what the hell do these people do? <laughs> and that's why they, they're, they're immortal, right? Yeah. They live forever because they've got vitamin D. They've got um, non-processed food diet. They're generally active because they all go for a walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're social creatures. But yeah. we're taking all of those things away currently in society. Um, you know, we've got terrible diet. Okay, there is a groundswell of movement against that too. But there's a terrible diet by the, you know, by the food companies being forced down the food chain. You know, people don't get out anymore. People don't interact with each other anymore on a human level. You know, because they look at children um, and children who don't, who aren't touched um, have massive um, developmental delays. So humans actually require physical touch mm-hmm. and so they've, they've you know they've studied kids who've not come into contact with humans um or abuse kids or whatever in a different number of different ways and you can find it in animals too so if you take and you these are the problems you see in zoos and you see it if you don't allow um the young to have physical interaction they actually start becoming ill yeah oh. 
don't want to end it on this note, but we only have an hour. Um, <laughs> no, and I, I like, uh, I do. Yeah, I don't know why we went down the very dark rabbit hole. Let's end it today. on an optimistic note. I am optimistic that people are starting to realize this at least. I think they are. And, I do think that. Yeah. And again, I don't want to counterbalance it with a negative point is I don't know what we can do about it, but I think it's important that we do. I think is your point, you know, and that, and that this is part of the why the philosophy of Bitcoin is appealing to many people. And that's why I saw it in the first place thinking, look, there is different ways of doing things. And maybe you can take one thing on at a time um, and you don't have to think of the whole change of society. I do think there's a book by Neil Howe called The Fourth Turning mm-hmm. that I think um, anybody's interested in this whole thing needs to read that book because yes. I think he's right. And I think that's part of the zeitgeist as well that we're all picking up is this Bitcoin thing, this all of these things we're talking to feel like we're getting to the point of the fourth turning. Yeah, we need your help uh, convincing Ben Hunt that Bitcoin is good too. He came on here and told me uh, we're all going to get shot in the streets. <laughs> For what was his reason? <laughs> he doesn't think the governments will let Bitcoin happen. I would argue they can't do anything otherwise. Well, okay, I'm gonna, what happens if Bitcoin doesn't allow governments to happen? That's, uh, <laughs> we're going to end it There's there. the mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to posit that question too. What happens if Bitcoin doesn't let the governments happen? Raul, it's been a, an, an immense pleasure. Thank you for coming through. I really I thoroughly appreciate enjoyed it. it. Really good. Um, a bit dark, but super interesting. I think the freaks are going to love it. Um, again, thank you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. It's a beautiful day. It's a gorgeous day. Yeah. Gorgeous day in New York. Let's go get some vitamin D. Yeah. Peace and love, freaks. <laughs>